Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks very much for tuning in this week. And on the program this time, we've got an Army-focused show. Later on in the program, we're joined by Kenneth McNeil, the CIO of the National Guard Bureau, to talk about a big expansion of the Army's approach to bring your own device. 20,000 new users now coming online to use that technology. First up, though, the Army's rolling out a series of new initiatives meant to get the technologies developed by small businesses into the weapon systems its soldiers use in the field. In particular, the Army wants to incentivize its large contractors to partner with those businesses and include their technologies in their bid proposals. But that's really only one of about five new initiatives the Army's launching to help kickstart small business participation and get some of the small firms across the valley of death. The Army officially launched them at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference recently in Washington. Gabe Camarillo is the Undersecretary of the Army. In an exclusive interview, he previewed some of them in a discussion with me. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. And, and I think we're going to focus a lot on acquisition, modernization, innovation today. But but let's start with the news that you're making this week with the new small business initiatives that, that you're rolling out. Really a lot going on there. Before we dig into the details of all five of these individual programs, maybe talk with us a bit about the overarching issue that you see here that you are trying to solve. What do these things have in common? Well, Jared, first of all, it's great to be here with you again. And it's exciting as part of AUSA to have the opportunity to talk about uh, small business. Uh, you know, within our national defense strategy, one of its key pillars is to build an enduring advantage for our national security. And one aspect of that is a very resilient industrial base. We all know, we all have heard for many years that our small businesses are a vital part of that. They are a font for innovation. Uh, they provide critical capabilities uh, to our warfighters, uh, and they are uh, an absolutely important part of building that enduring advantage moving forward. Typically, when we talk about small businesses, it is in the context of bridging the valley of death, making sure that innovation in that small in, uh, innovation base uh, is able to transition to a program. And having been in the private sector myself and also working on these issues for many years, uh, we felt in the Army that we needed to do something in addition to help bridge that valley of death. Often we talk about it only in the context of direct contract awards with small business, but that neglects the fact that many of the opportunities available to small businesses are to partner and team with other larger companies, integrators in many cases that can uh, marshal together the innovation and the technology that our small businesses provide into a capability that can be used by our warfighters. So. Uh, we looked at and studied this challenge for quite some time, and uh, we developed a set of initiatives that we hope will help uh, address this issue in sp uh, specifically and help us uh, to further encourage uh, participation by our small business innovation base uh, within our Army programs uh, by looking at this critical linkage using uh, integrators. Okay. Uh, well, well, let's start there, I guess, uh, that linkage between uh, innovators and, and maybe um, some, some of the primes, which is uh, one of the, the main initiatives that you're rolling out this week. Talk about how you're going to actually build those linkages and how that program is is really going to work. Absolutely. So I, I think, you know, to recognize that, uh, again, these small businesses have a really hard time doing business with the Department of Defense. It is a very complex acquisition process. They often, uh, unless they are part of one of our formal programs involving mentors and protégés, for example, um, it's very difficult. You don't have a Sherpa to kind of guide you through the entire process. Uh, so we've recognized that and recognizing that our, our you know, mid-sized and larger companies that provide that integration role, they are one of those critical pillars. 
we looked first and foremost at a way to incentivize those uh, companies, those integrators uh, to do businesses, do business with those small business innovative research companies uh, that we are already invested in, that are developing critical technologies that we need, and most importantly, that offer the innovation that we're going to rely on in the future. So we've created as one of the five initiatives, uh, a new project. We call it Project Vista. It's valuing innovation with a source selection technical advantage to look at a pilot program where we might uh, examine some of our programs of record. Most likely it will be some of the smaller uh, ACAT2, ACAT3, or ACAT4 programs where we can begin to pilot this, where we might be able to see where we can give source selection uh, credit to uh, those proposals that bring in the use of uh, critical technologies and innovative approaches that uh, are stemming from that small business innovation base, whether it's companies that have been funded through SIBR and SITR programs in the past, or they are uh, providing innovation in terms of critical technology areas that across the department and within the Army, we know we're going to need in the future. In order to provide that source selection advantage, do you need to make any regulatory changes or do you need help from Congress or, or can you basically do it as long as you explain in the procurement what the what the rating system is going to be? Absolutely. I mean, everything, of course, has to be fully compliant with our procurement integrity laws, with uh, all of our regulations and statutes for uh, acquisition. And the idea here is that within all of those rules, as long as we're very clear up front to everybody in industry, uh, how we might give source selection credit. And we do it today already on things like where, you know, companies can provide additional information on how we can do sustainment costs or uh, we give in some cases, um, you know, reduced lifecycle uh, costs, uh, a little bit of extra credit in the source selection for proposals that come back with those types of ideas or where you identify critical supply chain uh, issues. So this is not unprecedented. It would add another category where we might explore in the right program, uh, in the right context, the ability for vendors to come back uh, with an approach uh, that we would, it would help us to incentivize the use of these small businesses. Now, what the effect of all this is, it might help some of these innovative companies bridge the valley of death a little bit better. And, and do you have a good sense yet for how, how broad that pilot's going to be in the initial stage? Are you just going to try it on one or two programs at first, or is it going to be broader than that? No, I think initially it's going to be uh, a, you know, a limited pilot at first. And as I said earlier, I think we'll start with some of our smaller scale programs to uh, experiment and test to see how it would work. And then I think as we learn more, we'll have the opportunity to scale it out uh, after the first couple of years. Okay. So, so, so that helps companies who've already come in through that Cyber front door. You're also, I think, trying to get more people through the door in the first place with this thing that you're calling Army Catalyst. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would say that we'll look at other sources of innovation beyond just the Cyber and Sitter awardees for that uh, source selection evaluation credit. Uh, I think we'll, we'll have an opportunity to maybe expand that envelope a little bit further. Uh, another initiative is the Catalyst program. So we do have, uh, of course, a, uh, you know, a CIBR program across the Army where we are looking to uh, fund and develop uh, you know, critical technologies that we know are aligned to Army priorities. Uh, we are going to look at uh, creating kind of a, a management reserve of that program to deal with those critical issues that are of importance for Army modernization in 2030 and in 2040, which is what we refer to as the next horizon of critical capabilities. Uh, so we will look at you know, some of these um, businesses that fall into that space and find a way to maybe um, provide direct investment to some of those critical technology areas that might otherwise fall through the cracks. It enables us to make sure that we're always going to field the most capable and most uh, well-equipped army we possibly can.
And are you planning to publish some new set of, of what those priorities are, or are people not going to be surprised because they align to what the Army modernization priorities have, have already been? Yeah, we want to provide some kind of publication that will give uh, you know participants potentially in that program a little bit more clarity about what critical enabling technologies we're looking for uh, investment and what challenges we're looking to solve. So as we know, uh, many of them are not a surprise. I think as you look at our modernization pr uh, priorities today, but I think we'll certainly have an opportunity to kind of drill that down. You know, we will be consistent with some of the ones that, for example, the department has identified. There's 12 critical technologies that across the department we know we're going to need. Uh, I think some of those are very much consistent with capabilities the Army is going to focus in on over the next few years. So there'll be discrete technical problems rather than just saying, hey, we need help with long range precision fires. Next one is the intellectual property cell of experts, uh, which I understand you're going to stand up within the Department of the Army. DOD has done some of this, I think, at the direction of Congress, establishing, uh, I think, what they called an IP cadre. How is this different? Um, why, why is the Army going its own way here? Absolutely. So uh, there was congressional direction a few years ago to develop a cadre of expertise regarding intellectual property uh, about two or three years ago, I believe. And that's uh, been done by the Department of Defense. Um, but of course, it's very small in its size. Um, the other services have all explored developing their own cadre to augment and expand the use of this uh, talent and skill set. And let me explain a little bit about why that's important. So as we all know, um, you know, one of the big concerns in the industrial base in doing business with the Department of Defense and the Army in particular is protection for their intellectual property, which is an issue that takes on significant and added uh, uh, importance when you're looking at small businesses that uh, are kind of placing bets based on a couple of key technology areas that they've innovated on. Uh, the idea of what the Army developed a few years ago in an intellectual property strategy was to have a more nuanced, more tailored approach to IP moving forward. You know, the typical refrain is either we ask for all the IP we can possibly get because we're concerned about long-term sustainment costs, or we don't think about it early enough, and then we end up paying the price in the future. Our policy from two or three years ago was to have a more nuanced approach. You know, there are ways to um, have tailored approaches to IP that are appropriate for each individual developmental program and that are specifically important to that set of technologies that are being developed. Part of the problem we have is a lack of expertise in this area within the Army. So uh, the idea here is to not rely on a small cell across the department because there's just not enough experts to go around, but, but to be to develop its own cadre of expertise within the Army. And that will help us in a number of ways. First and foremost, as we are looking at uh, you know, more dedicated, more focused use of our existing small business innovation research programs, how can it inform some of those efforts and strategies moving forward? But then as we tailor program acquisition strategies, whether it's the smaller programs I mentioned earlier, or some of our larger developmental efforts, we will benefit from having IP expertise in-house that will help us to develop kind of those tailored approaches so that we are crafting the right approach very early on and we're asking for the right amount of IP from industry, not more than what we need. And it needs to be tailored given whether it's a software development program or a hardware specific program that relies on some software, there's very different approaches. And we need that expertise in order to help us uh, get the development that we want in the future. Yeah, and as you've kind of been alluding to here, part of the problem I think that, that DOD faced when it was standing up its cadre is there's just not enough human beings who have deep expertise in IP as it applies to government procurement. So you're going to have to grow these people, right, to, to, to some extent. How, how are you going to go about finding these individuals? Where are you going to recruit them from? And how are you going to teach them what the Army needs them to know? 
That's a fantastic question uh, because in the past, we've always wanted to develop and cultivate that talent. Uh, the challenge is retaining that expertise over time in the Army. So part of our strategy here is to grow some expertise organically, and some of it might be that we're able to get tap into from the private sector, uh, folks that we can maybe put on, on loan, for example, to uh, federal service or who would be willing to do a short term of federal service, whether it's in a defined kind of term limited uh, federal appointment. Uh, or something of that nature that we might be able to bring in expertise uh, at different times and rotate people in uh, with that have that expertise in the private sector. Uh, the bottom line is we're going to need to have some cadre of expertise in, in order to be able to inform the strategies of our very top programs and some of our more tailored approaches for innovation that we're getting after in the small business space. And then you got to make sure that program offices actually leverage that expertise. Is that uh, something that you're going to need to focus on to make sure that these folks aren't just sitting waiting for problems to come their way? Oh, my sense is that that very opposite is going to happen. Uh, there is a significant appetite, I would say, for that expertise across our program executive offices, our PEOs. Uh, they've been asking for this in some ways, having to try to grow it or borrow it where they can. Um, and, and I think we need to you know, provide that capability for them. So I think there's there's a demand signal that's already there that's not being met. All right. I want to make sure we get to the rest of the initiatives before Perfect. we before we run out of time today. Let's let's talk about the R&D marketplace that you're also announcing this week, which I think also gets to the idea similar to Project Vista of connecting these small innovators with primes. Absolutely. I think one of the challenges we have is visibility across uh, our S&T and R&D investment base as to what we've already been funded. There's a lot of innovation out there. Uh, and I've had this conversation with Secretary Heidi Shu, who's the Undersecretary for uh, Research and uh, Engineering. There is a desire to just make, make a, a little bit better, uh, provide a little bit better insight into what technologies we've already invested in and what companies are doing today. Uh, I know there's a lot of repositories of that expertise elsewhere, but none that capture what we've already funded within the Army. And we want to promulgate that information as wide as possible to our program managers uh, and our PEOs to enable kind of that, that partnership that we talked about earlier uh, with industry and particularly with the integrators. And then the, the fifth one, I'll just mention it right now, it's you know existing programs that we have to uh, award innovation within our small business innovation base, uh, like our XTech and our prime competitions. What we want to do is, you know, rather than just relying on the mentor protege program to hopefully find them somebody to work with, we want to develop an award uh, that will recognize the best examples of that partnership between integrators and small business innovation, innovative research companies, uh, where they're working together they work on developing a strategy, working with Army program managers to bridge that valley of debt, and they can provide a capability that the Army is going to use. How are these prizes going to be selected? Maybe say a bit about sort of the scale and, and, and scope of, of, of what those awards are going to be. Are they going to be substantial and, and enough to incentivize people to come in? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the idea behind the, comp the, com the competitive awards is that winners will be eligible for uh, you know, coming out of the CIBR kind of phase two or phase three effort, a follow-on contract for prototype development and deployment. So it has to align ultimately with areas where we have requirements and where we have funding. So let me emphasize that first. But we're looking for, in this particular case, really good partnerships between integrators and small businesses uh, that provide uh, combined integrated capability that we think will make a meaningful difference for soldiers. And that's part of the equation that I think we don't have a conversation enough about in the department. We look at small businesses and what uh, individual component or software tool or, or one particular capability that they have, 
but the department ultimately buys integrated solutions. And so we're looking for that best combination as part of this. As far as the scale is concerned, I think we'll start we'll start relatively small to try to begin to you know, prototype how this would work. Uh, and then I think we'll scale it out like everything else uh, based on our experience. Gabe Camarillo is the Undersecretary of the Army. He's back with us after a short break. When we come back, we'll zoom out just a bit and talk about some of the acquisition approaches the Army's been using beyond small businesses to attract new innovation into the Army. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking in this part of the show with Gabe Camarillo, the Undersecretary of the Army, joining us to talk about some of the new approaches the Army's taking and has been taking to get innovation into the hands of soldiers through the Army's acquisition system. There has been, um, even before you launched these initiatives, obviously a huge focus at the DOD level, at the Army level, and each of the services on attracting small and innovative and, and non-traditional companies. I think a lot's even happened at the congressional level since since the last time you were in the building. At, at some point, do you run into the problem that there are just too many front doors out there and companies don't know exactly how to engage with the government because it's complicated and confusing? which is oh, the problem I, you're trying to solve in the first place, try to make government work less complicated and confusing for small businesses. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, it is a, a systemic challenge that just by the nature of the complexity of our acquisition process and the multiple avenues uh, through which as a department, we buy capabilities and we develop those capabilities. It's very confusing. It's, it's a Byzantine uh, maze of a process. Uh, what we need to continue to do as leaders within the department, and certainly I'm working to do with uh, you know, uh, Doug Bush, who's our Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, how can we simplify that, provide roadmaps, and in many ways, opportunities for folks to, to demystify the process? Uh, I think we have some really good programs that we can make better use of. Uh, I also think we need to continue to engage uh, through, for example, our small business programs in particular, about how to best link up with uh, opportunities to bridge the valley of death. And I think, you know, we have existing programs like Mentor Protege uh, and others, I think that are working great, but things that we're trying to innovate on are like the R&D marketplace, making sure that on the catcher's end, we have a little bit more visibility into what innovation and what technology we've already invested in today. Getting back to some of those congressional changes that I mentioned that I think kind of happened in between your last tour and, and this current tour that you're, you're serving in now as undersecretary, things like authority for follow-on production OTAs and, and middle tier of acquisition, have, have those initiatives and the ways that the Army has used them, and, and the Army's, I think, been one of the most prolific users of them, have they, from your perspective, made a big difference to how companies can engage with the government compared to pre that wave of many reforms? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that the most significant change from all of the congressional reforms in the middle part of last decade is that it's enabled the Army to utilize speed in our acquisition process. Um, clearly, with the development of middle tier uh, acquisition pathways, the uh, you know proliferated use of OTAs, for example, that have streamlined the contracting process considerably. And if I think if you look at the statistics, the Army is probably the biggest user over the last uh, six to seven years of OTAs across the Department of Defense. Uh, so I think it's enabled us to go very, very quickly, and that's great. 
the part that we are now working on, particularly in our very large acquisition and development programs, is making the conversion from an OTA prototyping middle tier approach into a fielded uh, sustainable configuration of a capability that will ultimately be part of the Army's inventory for a longer period of time. The best example of that, for example, is the mobile protected firepower program uh, that the Army started out through uh, you know, a middle mid-tier uh, uh, capability uh, in terms of us being able to uh, very quickly develop prototypes. Um, we were able to leverage what the best of industry was to offer. And now uh, getting ready to start fielding that capability, you know, going to the process of making sure that it goes through all the checks and balances that we normally would, uh, you know, operational testing, uh, reliability, you name it, making sure that as we um, in, you know, kind of assimilate the MPF into the Army's inventory, all of those checks and balances are, are dealt with. And so we're, we're, we're learning from that process. I think, uh, you know, how we make that transition. And it's going to be very important as we continue to evolve other prototyping efforts into those final configurations, particularly, for example, in our long range fires portfolio. Yeah, sounds like it's almost its own valley of death program in, problem internal to the department. What what's what's the main barrier there? Is it a lack of authority, a, a lack of policy written down? Is it just a we haven't quite done this before and we're still learning? Actually, I, I don't think that there's a barrier there, and I certainly don't see a valley of death. I think we've got a very high return rate. So, for example, next generation squad weapon. I just mentioned mobile protected firepower. Uh, we're set to have more of these programs go from prototyping to production and kind of fielding over the next couple of years. So we're building a lot of momentum. I think we've cracked the code on this. Uh, what I am emphasizing, though, is that you know we're, we're you know we're focused on for the next two years is making sure that we're making that conversion in the right way. And I think I'll give you one example: long-range hypersonic weapon, which is a critical capability the Army is developing. We have spent a lot of time in the last two years through our rapid capabilities and critical technologies office, RICTO, developing that system. At the same time, we know it's ultimately going to be a program that will be uh, assimilated into the normal process. It will be fielded and it has to be sustained. So we have representatives from PEO Missiles in Space who are working side by side with the developmental teams in the RICTO office, making sure that they're getting ready for that handoff so that it happens smoothly and the transition happens seamlessly. Uh, so we are learning very good lessons about how to do it. And I think we're building some really good momentum there. But I don't want to convey the impression that there's a valley of death. I think all I'm saying is, you know, we're doing pretty well at this and we're learning on the fly and we're doing a pretty good job, in my opinion. OK, no, that's a good clarification. Um, l- Let me double back on OTAs for just a minute, because there has been so much energy in that, especially in the Army. One of the um, concerns slash criticisms that's come up in GAO and IG reports and frankly, my own observations is that the proliferation of especially consortium-based OTAs, as much goodness as can happen in each one of those, they also can tend to be their own walled gardens so that at the department level, don't always see exactly what all the requirements are happening in there, all the individual procurements that are happening in there, not even all the spend that's happening in there. Is there is there a knowledge management problem that you see in, in terms of you know what you as undersecretary or what ASALT um, knows about the collective work that's being done across all of those little innovation consortiums. Do we know where we're using the money? Do we know if we're duplicating effort, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, no, I think uh, it, it raises a good question, and, and I'm very familiar with the issue, both from my time in the private sector and certainly from my time in government. Um, I think the consortia play a really important role to 
uh, do market research, help us kind of um, promulgate information and uh, better awareness of what opportunities there are within the Army uh, for the development of uh, new capabilities through the OTAs that they are they're aligned to. So I think just from a commodity perspective, it is a community of interest. And I think the consortia play a very vital role to help spread the word about what opportunities are out there. Uh, the, the interaction with the industrial base, as you said, can get uh, complex, you know, very complicated between uh, what our contracting officers will say, what the consortia will say, uh, and then how that gets filtered out ultimately to the industrial base. Uh, so I, I don't think there is a common issue across the entire portfolio of OTAs and consortia. I think it varies by uh, consortia. It varies by commodity base that you're talking about. Uh, some of them are very collaborative between the industrial base uh, and the government, and it works very, very well. The example I would give there, for example, is Army Aviation. Uh, there is a very, very tight-knit uh, community there, and I think that they work, for example, really well, for example, on the ecosystem for future vertical lift to help define what that modular open uh, system and architecture standards are going to be uh, for that you know, future development of platforms. So uh, I think they can play a really good role in those areas. In others, we just got to make sure that uh, we are not uh, closing doors for industry, that we are making sure that we're opening doors as much as possible and that we're providing clarity uh, regarding the opportunities that exist. So we have to be very mindful of it. And I know that uh, the ASOL team is working with the broader contracting community to make sure we do that. Before we run out of time, I definitely wanted to at least touch on another issue that's been a pretty big change in DoD acquisition regulations in the past year, which is, or past few years rather, is which is software acquisition. We have a software acquisition pathway, a lot of attention on that area from Congress as well. What are your observations coming back in now on, on how that area has changed and what the Army still needs to do? I think it is long overdue. I'm extremely pleased that the Army has embraced, uh, in you know my view, the last nine months that I've been here, uh, the software acquisition pathway, and most importantly, the uh, agility in our requirements development process that has to match it. Uh, as we all know, uh, you know the Army, the Department of Defense, really the federal government writ large, it is it is working very very hard to convert what is an industrial age model for developing new capabilities, which works great if it's a tank, uh, an aircraft carrier, or a fighter jet. Uh, it is very hard when it is a software based capability that you're developing and you're looking to achieve a minimally viable product that you can scale from there in an agile way. Uh, that is very hard to conform to our existing processes. So we've invented new processes across the department. Uh, I'm very pleased that the Army is leading the way in many efforts to try to pioneer the software acquisition pathway on a couple of programs. Uh, and I think as we look ahead to some major programs, for example, uh, the development of our, our Enterprise Business System Convergence Program, which is a future ERP, we're looking at leveraging the software acquisition uh, pathway to do this. And, and what is the key difference? It recognizes that you know we don't deliver these capabilities in a giant big bang. We're going to do it over time with software drops, and we're going to continue to iterate very closely with the user. And in my view, it's recognizing best acquisition practices. It's what, for example, we do uh, in the classified world very, very well. It's what the CFTs do with the acquisition community within our modernization priorities right now very, very well. It's tight linkage, very close collaboration between requirements and development and making sure that you're iterating quickly over time to get the best product viable or available to the user. And one of the common complaints about doing software acquisition through the years has been just paying for it, 
wedging it into the the Pentagon's budgeting process. Congress sort of tried to help with that, creating this new colorless money pilot program, BA-8 as it's sometimes called. Army has been um, not, not a huge user of it so far. I think there's only one program in it as of now. Do we need to try more of that? Should we expect next year's budget to see uh, to, to, to have more proposals for, for the BA-8 uh, money in it? Well, I'm very supportive of the BA-8 pilot. I think the, the colorless acquisition, the real advantage to that is that, again, it helps us uh, get, a, get a little bit of flexibility from the industrial-based model. The industrial model is that you're going to develop something and then you're ultimately going to field a hardware capability and then you're going to sustain it. It's premised on very discrete kind of uh, milestones and timelines. But as we know, in software, you are never in a position where something is fully fielded. You're never you're always in the process of sustaining it and you're always in the process of doing a little bit of development. So what that means is you need a little bit of RDT&E. You need what's called procurement and you need what's called sustainment almost simultaneously to get this done right and to make sure that we deliver the best capability to the Army. So uh, as we expand the pilot or as we make better use of it, I'm looking forward to making sure that it's employed in the best way for the Army. Gabe Camarillo, the Undersecretary of the Army, joining us in an exclusive interview to talk about five new small business initiatives the Army's piloting to help get innovation into the hands of soldiers. Short break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about Bring Your Own Device in the Army. Kenneth McNeil, the CIO of the National Guard Bureau, joins us. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servido. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Army, for quite a while now, has been testing technologies to let soldiers use their own mobile devices on Army networks. Now it's time for a much broader rollout. The service has just started Phase 3 of its Bring Your Own Authorized Mobile Device Pilot. About 20,000 people now getting access in this newest phase. Most of the initial users have been Army National Guard soldiers. Kenneth McNeil is the... Kenneth McNeil is the CIO of the National Guard Bureau, and he joins us now to talk more about the latest developments. Let me just start with a really open-ended question and, and just have you bring us up to speed with where the Guard in particular, and, and maybe you can talk about the broader Army to whatever extent you can, is with this bring-your-own-approved device uh, journey that you're on. Yeah, so thank you very much uh, for, again, for the opportunity to have this on uh, discussion about the National Guard digital modernization initiatives. But Bring Your Own Device has been our flagship uh, initiative going all the way back to uh, when CVR, Microsoft Office CVR uh, went away for the National Guard. We learned during the uh, operations and missions that we were doing in DC that this this is very important to have our traditional soldiers and airmen to have capabilities that they can put on their personal mobile devices, whether it's a phone, iPad, uh, it keeps us connected. We're now in uh, phase three. Uh, we went through phase two uh, about a year ago, and we're now in phase three. There's a total of 20,000 licenses um, that will be deployed for the force total, the big army, uh, the National Guard, and the Air National Guard. And so we have 5,000 licenses, uh, a little over that, actually. And we will be deploying these licenses starting um, 11 October. Now, what they did was all of the seniors, uh, the CIOs, we 
already been onboarded. I've been using it now for a week. Um, this is my second go around using the capability. I was in the phase two pilot and some minor uh, improvements have been made, uh, but certainly it works great. I've turned off my government furnished device and 100% solely using uh, this bringing on device, Hapori solution on my uh, personal phone. Um, and so we, we see this as the future, obviously. This is a game changer for the, for the National Guard community because leading up to mobilizations and, and even after you have been you know, deployed, uh, this keeps you connected. And we look at it as a cost saving for the future also. Um, we've been doing some analysis on the cost of obviously, you know, buying government furnished devices. And we think uh, as we go down the road and, and, and look at this, we'll be able to save the department um, some funding. And we don't have all of that tied down at this point, uh, the exact cost savings. But just doing the, going through the analysis, we think that this, this will yeah, end some uh, cost savings for the, the department. And this is probably a bit of an obvious question, but maybe talk a bit about why the guard population is a, is a natural place to start this work and why it benefits the reserve compos in, in particular. Very, very good question. Because it, in our traditional guardsmen um, that have their other professions uh, that they're, they're in on a day-to-day basis, you know, not called up until it's time to mobilize for some event or, or a mission, they don't have government furnished uh, devices. So now you can stay connected between call-ups, between drills. Um, you now have on your personal cell phone or your iPad or whatever mobile device you're using, you are connected. And so with the active force, you're reporting to your headquarters or wherever you uh, report to daily, you know, whether it's in the motor pool or or where, and you're on a computer, uh, a government furnished computer. And so there's a different population uh, for the National Guard and Reserve component for Compo two and three. And so that is why we see this as a game changer. And the proof that this is actually will be, you know, very helpful is CVR gave us an example of how this can really help guardsmen because doing a call up in the District of Columbia, most soldiers and airmen that I talk with uh, when I visit, they they were using CVR. They had it on their their phones. They had it on their their mobile devices, their iPads, and things of that nature. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago when you know we'd ask senior DoD technology leaders, "Are we ever going to have BYOD in, in the military?" And and at least some of them would say, "Never happen." What's changed from a technology or culture or policy perspective to, to get you to where you are? Well, as you know, we, we constantly improve when it comes to cybersecurity and, and, and protecting the, the Doden and, and making sure devices that we're going to connect. It, it, we constantly improve on that. And, and also the cloud. And so this is data at rest. So, um, you know, when we went through phase two, and uh, with DOT&E, we had the red team uh, come out and really put this through its paces. So it's just improving the technology and our, as our industry partners really step up their game 
and, and proven their capability to meet the DOD standards. And that's what's basically changed. So you, 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 know, you never can say never because technology catches up in the security, um, cybersecurity protocols, you're able to meet those. Since you're both a technology provider and a consumer of this, it, it sounds like, um, maybe talk a bit about what the user experience is like on, on, the, on the new BYOD solution versus the GFE that you, that you also have. You said you shut the GFE off, so you must like the new one. Well, <laughs> well I mean, as far as user experience, uh, you know, so far it's, it's been the same. I mean, so I can access everything that I need, um, my emails, um, I can uh, use Microsoft, you know, Office. I can use Teams. I've I've used and experimented with every app and capability that I would use on my government device and even my um, computer. So basically, I now have what I need uh, to communicate. If I want to do a Teams call, if I want to do chat, and of course, of course, my emails. So I have those capabilities that I, that I would use constantly when I'm outside of my office and, and need to access uh, the network. And, and I know you said you don't have the, the potential dollar savings completely mapped out here, which is totally understandable, but, but can you give us some notional examples of, of the things that you will no longer have to buy in the future, ideally? Where, where do those savings come from? Well, first of all, is it's, it, you don't have to buy an actual device. So we understand that, uh, you know, and I want to make this clear, I'm not saying that we will not in the future buy any government uh, furnished phones, but if you are comparing the prices of how much it costs for a government mobile device, whether it's an iPad or phone or any type of, you know, mobile device versus buying a capability that you're just paying for software, um, it, it, that's where we see the cost savings uh, long term. And the other thing that comes along with, with your mobile device is paying for the, the monthly uh, carrier fees. So there's a lot of costs tied to this. And again, I want to put emphasis on this. We're not saying that there would be no need for government furnished devices, but it would be a need for a lot less. And the key thing here is, you know, you will have a larger number of your force connected. Um, and, and with, uh, you know, having access to, to the government network. There have been policy concerns through the years with BYOD around things like what if there's a data spill? What if there's unauthorized information on, on someone's personal phone? Does the government need to go retrieve it or wipe the phone? Can they legally wipe the phone? How have you worked through some of those kind of thorny questions? Well, you know, um, it's data arrest. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't reside on your phone. I mean, we're using the cloud. And so it's a difference uh, as far as something that's hard on your phone, like a GFE. If there's an issue, now you got to wipe that device. Um, we're also working with DISA long term as they look at, you know, how they're going to archive text messaging and, and uh, you know, looking at the future of, of how we do business when it comes to that. Talking with Kenneth McNeil, the CIO of the National Guard Bureau, about the latest in the Army's Bring Your Own Device Pilots. We'll talk more after a short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio.
Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking in this part of the show with Kenneth McNeil, the CIO of the National Guard Bureau, about the latest big expansion of the Army's bring-your-own-device pilot. Realizing you can really only speak for the Guard here, but fundamentally, is there anything about the technology that you're implementing here that that wouldn't work across the rest of the department? Does this seem like it's scalable to, to an enterprise that big? Well, we, we think it is. We don't see anything. And then you use the Army, for example, of course, you know, is 20,000 licenses going out with this uh, Hapori uh, pilot that we're doing. Um, so this is going across the department. And also we're looking at uh, uh, 5G technology. So we're just, you know, we're looking at, you know, where we are right now today and where we're going in the future. So I think we we have a really good sample in this phase three technology, uh, phase three pilot to look at all of the technology that we really need to look at. What do you still need to learn out of the pilot process, you think, before this becomes, I don't know, production level or, or you know, scaled across across the broader army? Well, the big thing is user experience. Um, so, uh, you know, from my user experience, it's great, but but I'm the CIO for the National Guard, right? So it, it really matters how the soldiers and airmen uh, view uh, this user experience. And that's what we're trying to get at. We're, we're going to really, just like phase two, but now our largest sample size, we're really going to get at their user experience because really is, that's what it's all about. Um, with the, obviously the technology is secure and we, we have all of that, but the, if the user thinks it's, um, not quite right, uh, uh, we, we would have to adjust. And so that's what we're really looking for. And, and I know you touched on this briefly before when you mentioned CVR, but it sounds like a lot of the stuff that the broader department had to do around the pandemic to increase bandwidth to the cloud in and out of the various DOD facilities probably helped a lot to, to enable all of this and laid the groundwork for it, I'm guessing. It, it really did. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And so we learned, uh, and, I, and I think the department just did a you know, tremendous job, you know, uh, when the COVID pandemic kicked off and we had to really adjust how we were doing business because of telework and everything. But a lot of lessons learned from that, and the department has stepped up their game. I give a lot of credit to the DOD CIO and Honorable Sherman and his team at really leading the effort across the board with the services and with the National Guard Bureau to really get at what we need in the arena of IT going going forward. I think that we're in a situation where we're not going to go backwards. I mean, we still have across the department, telework in place, remote work in place. So this just adds to it. So it has um, multiple uses, I think, for for the, the DOD as a whole. But those lessons learned was very helpful in how we invested in the network and, and increasing bandwidth was really tremendous and is able to, we're able now to benefit from that. Wanted to pivot to a, another aspect of your digital modernization efforts, which is um, the day before we're recording this, the Big Army announced uh, a new agreement with Google to provide uh, their their workspace and email services to soldiers. Um, talk a bit about how that works in the National Guard, how it's going to be used, and and I mean that's kind of a big deal, as far as I know. It's the first non Microsoft email platform that's really ever been introduced into DoD. 
Well, it, it is a big deal. And we partnered with the uh, headquarters department of the Army, Dr. Iyer and, and Lieutenant General Morrison. And, you know, obviously, from an Army perspective, uh, we have our National Guard soldiers will be a part of this. Um, really, it, it's, it's, to, it's to really bring, you know, our industry partners in, take advantage of, of you know, all capability across the board. Uh, we think this is positive. Uh, we look forward to the partnership with Google, but the National Guard, uh, we were involved in the decision-making process with the Army as they took a look at this. And, and we think that this is another capability that can help uh, going down the road uh, as far as uh, soldiers having what they need uh, with IT. And is is this partly a cost-saving move too? Is it is it more cost-effective to put at least some portion of your population on this new service versus buying them Microsoft 365 licenses? Well, we think across the board is really looking at, you know, multiple capabilities. Uh, of course, you know, I won't speak for the Army on, on the cost-saving piece because, again, that's being still being worked out, but just having multiple capability and being able to look at just not one industry partner capability out there, I think is always healthy to have multiple industry partners uh, invested in, in the uh, Department of Defense. So we we look at this capability as just broadening the capabilities already exist out there um, in, in the industry um, for the Department of Defense. And just to be clear that this new service will be kind of integrated into the, the broader Army's IT fabric that'll be connected to army.mil email addresses, I imagine, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What else is what else is going on in your digital transformation journey that we should know about that we haven't talked about yet? So, you know, we are uh, we continue to improve our domestic uh, support uh, for Silver Authority's capability. Um, for example, you know, we're we're now involved in uh, hurricane uh, support efforts in Florida. We have National Guard capability that's uh, connected to first responders um, as, as National Guardsmen are supporting Florida um, from multiple states. Um, and so this is our mobile capability we, we take. And, you know, our uniqueness is when we deploy to support a state, we have to talk to first responders. Uh, we have to be able to have communications with uh, uh, police, fire, um, our interagency partners, FEMA. And so we've just recently upgraded uh, our capability. We call GIST, our Joint Incident Site Capability, Communications Capability. And so now that has the latest technology and, and it allows us to continue to talk to first responders uh, during any um, event uh, that we need to support. And Florida is a perfect example. Um, we have, as you know, a number of guardsmen that have been supporting that operation and supporting the Florida National Guard, and that's going really well. That's huge because that gets at the the tactical side, I would call it, of what we do here in the in the National Guard as far as communications. We continue to partner with the Army and the Air Force on the. Title 10 capability and and being a part of new capability that's being deployed for the force. 
So the one thing that 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 I want to also highlight is I really uh, appreciate visiting the, the program executive offices. I was just at POC3T several months ago, and just the new technology rolling out and how the guardsmen, uh, how the National Guard is at the forefront of that new technology. Uh, we really are. Um, we're not on the back end, we're on the front end. We really appreciate the relationship with uh, uh, the PEOs and, and of course, uh, Headquarters Department of the Army, CIO, and G6 office. Can I double back real quick on that joint incident communications capability that, that you mentioned? How does that actually work? Do you, do you need to deploy communication equipment to the local first responders as well, or does it fold into FirstNet or something else somehow? How does how does all that? It, it, it actually, uh, it, the 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 device itself is deployed to the area that's being supported and it has bridging capability. It allows you to cross band. It has a cross banding capability um, that's used in the device and it lets you, you know, whoever's responding, it lets you tie to their radios. So this is a radio based piece of equipment. And so obviously different agencies, uh, different uh, first responders from, you know, at the, you know, lowest level of a community, you're going to bring what you bring to the operation. And so with the cross banding capability in these GIS, it lets you communicate. And this 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 uh, capability is not new. We've used it for a number of years. We just upgraded our current uh, capability that we have just to get the technology back up to the latest standards. That's Kenneth McNeil, the CIO of the National Guard Bureau. He joined us to talk about the big expansion of the Army's Bring Your Own Device pilot. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Gabe Camarillo, the Undersecretary of the Army, about several new initiatives the Army is just now rolling out to attract small businesses, especially innovative small businesses, to the Army's acquisition ecosystem. If you missed that part of the conversation, we will post this week's full program, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. Also, check us out in podcast form. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for On DoD. That's it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbit. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.